Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Fantasy and Adventure Channel. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew. Today I'll be talking with epic fantasy writer Anthony Ryan about his recently completed Draconis Memoria series. The Draconis Memoria series is comprised of a trilogy set in a world where Drake, Dragonblood, is a prized commodity, the basis of the trading fortune of the Iron Ship Syndicate. It is a brilliant, savage adventure. When I jumped in with Anthony Ryan's latest release, ominously named The Empire of Ashes, I soon realized I couldn't do justice to the detailed, intricately plotted series without reading all three, sequentially, in for a penny, in for a pound, like they say. August, September, and October found me dwelling into a world with various cultures, a decadent empire complete with a doddering emperor, and another continent enthralled to a powerful corporation. There were steaming jungles, barren mountains, and ice flows overlaying the ocean bed volcanoes. In addition to the challenges of noting the terrain and politics, there are multiple points of view, as in most adult epic fiction. From my reading, two main characters emerged and tied together the evolving narrative. Lizanne Lethridge is a ruthless special initiatives agent, an employee of the Iron Ship Trading Syndicate with a taste for explosives and occasional dalliances. Clay Torcreek is an emotionally scarred young man, survivor of a slum called the Blinds. They're both blood-blessed, humans that can ingest the blood of drakes and manifest superpowers. When Clay is forced into service by Lizanne's employers, he and Lizanne are initially at odds. In the first book, Clay is sent on a secret expedition to find out what happened to an earlier task force that braved the interior of the continent Aradzia, intent on finding the fabled White Drake. A taste of its blood, and the future becomes known. When Clay encounters the White Drake in its resting place and unintentionally activates it, he learns that the beast has its own nefarious plans for humanity. In the second book, he and Lizanne become unlikely allies, dedicated to stopping the threat. Clay and his kin go south to a land of perpetual snow, to seek out the secret of crystals from space that are linked to the past and can induce changes in drakes and humans. Lizanne infiltrates a prison looking for a mysterious man called the Tinker, who may be able to unlock the secret of an ancient music box, which holds additional clues about the white drake. In the process of breaking out of the infamous prison, she becomes known as Miss Blood and topples an empire. 
Clay, on his own journey, discovers a long-lost culture and a 2,000-year-old survivor under the ice. In meantime, the White Drake leads the Drakes in a war against mankind. The Otherworld, Lee Crystals, aid the transformation of its human captives into the so-called spoiled. The spoiled who have a linked consciousness are under the control of the White Drake, who mobilizes them as an army, as well as occasionally feeding them to its brood. Will Clay, Lizanne, and their allies find the key to destroying the White Dragon? The third and last book concludes the series, and the fight against the White Drake's domination. Before I invite Anthony on air, a very short bio. After a long career in the British civil service, he took up writing full-time after the success of his first novel, Blood Song, book one of The Raven Shadow. His interests include art, science, and the unending quest for the perfect pint. You can find him on the internet at anthonyryan.net, that's not .com. So that was his bio. He is as succinct in his personal information as he is loquacious on the subject of empires. And you'll hear him soon. We're going to start off with a reading from Empire of Ashes done by Anthony. Chapter 7 Clay. Oh, we do indeed have work for you, the older woman told Clay, gesturing to the map. Work of a most fruitful and interesting nature. If you could turn your close attention to this chart, I will be happy to explain in full. Clay moved closer to the table, eyes lingering on the revolver securing the corner. He stiffened a little as Miss Lethbridge moved to his side tracking his gaze and speaking softly. It's fully loaded, in case you were wondering. Cats toying with a mouse, he thought, dragging his eyes from the revolver to the map. He knew the shape of the Eurasian coastline well enough, having stolen a few antique maps over the years, though their accuracy varied widely with age. This one was newly drawn, the thick waxed paper clean and free of old marks, the curving lines of the coast and the rivers set down with the true precision of a professional mapmaker, and the whole thing overlaid by a grid of faint dots. The continent of Aradzia, Madame Bondesil said. This is a small-scale recreation combining the most accurate maps ever produced by ironship cartographers. Her finger tapped the black dot with the word Carvenport inscribed above it, then tracked south along the Green Churn River through dense jungles until it came to rest on a vast area of blankness, stretching towards the southern plains. Despite two centuries of colonization, she said, there are still whole swathes of this land that remain unknown to civilized eyes. Her finger underlined the inscription curving through the blankness, the red sands. You've heard of this place, no doubt, Mr. Torcreek. It's a desert, he said. A wasteland with no drakes. Even the headhunters don't go there. Ah, but surely you know the story of the one intrepid band who did. He frowned, wondering why they had gone to such lengths to ask him about a tale often told by drunks who claimed former allegiance to various contractor companies. 
The Whitler Expedition, he said. It's a story. Not sure I ever believed it. It's true enough, I assure you. Though over the years the factual details have been greatly confused in the public mind. Tell me, which version have you heard? Whitler was a contractor, like my uncle. Captain of the Sandpipers. Sandrunners. Madame Bondesil corrected. Please, go on. He and his company went looking for the White Drake and never came back. Some say the spoiled got them all, others that they found the white and it ate them. And in any of these stories was the name Ethelin Drystone ever mentioned. Clay searched his memory. Story goes there was a blood blessed with them, an academy girl. If so, I guess she died with the others. No, Mr. Torkreek, Madame Bondesil assured him with a sad smile. She most assuredly did not. I assume you require no extensive lecture on the need for discretion in this matter, nor must I emphasize the consequences, should our confidence in you prove misplaced. Clay's eyes snapped involuntarily to the revolver, fully loaded, but they don't need it. I reach for it, and they know they're wasting their time. Cats with a mouse. Guess you don't, he muttered, returning his gaze to the map. Excellent. The Sandrunners did indeed meet an untimely end on the Red Sands, but Ethelin Drystone was not amongst them. To my certain knowledge, she escaped their fate, having secured possession of an egg. A white egg. I trust the significance of this is not lost on you. A white egg. He found himself searching the woman's face for some sign of trickery, finding only a placid certainty. Whites are a myth he said. Never seen, never harvested. Just tall tales told from the old days. The first settlers did indeed talk of encounters with whites, but even then they were exceptionally rare, and reports of their existence taken as the delusions of those who had lost their minds amidst the many horrors to be found in the interior. As it transpires, thanks to Miss Drystone, we know they were far from a delusion, and somewhere out there, her hand played over the red sands once more. Lies the evidence to prove it. In spite of his tension, Clay couldn't suppress a laugh, though it emerged as more of a groan. And you ladies have some notion I might know where to find it. Oh, goodness, no. Madame Bondesil exchanged an amused glance with her subordinate, who held a hand to her mouth to suppress a chuckle. Your esteemed uncle will do the finding, with Miss Lethridge's assistance, whilst you, Mr. Torkreek, will be the conduit for that assistance. The blue trance, he realised aloud, his puzzlement deepening further. There's at least half a hundred blood-blessed in this port, and most of them in iron ship employ. Actually, there are currently thirty-five blood-blessed resident in Carvenport, and their names are properly recorded in the Joint Company Register, as per special edict of the Global Trade Council. Everyone except you, young sir. Your value to us lies in your anonymity. Our competitors have no knowledge of your status, and therefore no opportunity to intercept any communications you might make. The blue trance. He shook his head, a sense of entrapment adding to his already heightened unease. I've never done it. Never even tasted blue. The price was always too high. Besides, who would I trance talk with? 
Even better, Madame Bondesil reached into her sleeve to extract a vial, holding it out to him. The colour of the vial's contents was paler than the other product variants he knew, and there was something odd about the way it caught the light. The gleam was duller than it should be, muted somehow, as if a portion of the light had been captured in the product. Blue, she said, fresh from the laboratory. Hello, Anthony, and welcome to New Books Network Fantasy and Adventure Show. Hi, Gabrielle. Uh, thanks for asking me to be on. Sure. So I've got lots of questions for you after reading your three books. As a Yank, all I can say is, wow, what a well-thought-out and detailed world you've built. Oh, thank you. Glad you liked it. Yes, it was fascinating. And from your author photo, which I checked out, you appear studious and very intense. I picture you in a small room, walls entirely covered with maps, timelines, and diagrams on the various mechanical and military devices in your books. Am I far off base here? Uh, I have a lot of books, a lot of history books and visual reference books. I don't go in for the pinning things up on boards. I tend to just use uh, you know, folders of my uh, iMac for that. Uh, but yeah, I do do a lot of uh, visual research. And uh, as far as my author, author for photo goes, I, I owe a lot to Photoshop. Oh, you owe a lot to Photoshop. Okay. Well, I think that intense look, I don't think that can be faked in Photoshop. <laughs> I've grown to be attention. Well, uh, your career is really taking off now. You self-published your first book, which was part of the Ravens trilogy. And now you write full-time, as is evident with the speed by which you've produced your newest series. Has working with a publisher enabled working full-time? Um, it's one of the, it's a big what if question actually, um, cause I had a choice. I could have, cause I self, I self published initially the book garnered enough attention that I got a, an offer from uh, Ace Rock, which is a division of Penguin Random had, um, relatively quickly after I published it actually. Uh, but you know, I had a choice of whether to go with them or whether to, uh, stay self published. Um, and it's, <laughs> It's one of the big what-ifs of my life, what would have, what would have happened if I hadn't. Um, all I can say is it's worked out okay. Um, I might have sold the same number of books if I'd stayed as a self-publisher, or I might not. There's, there's really no way to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do know I like I like having professional editors. I like having not having the responsibility of the finding cover artists and stuff. Even though I do, I do that. For, I still self-publish on a small scale for my short works and so on. But it's you know, it's a, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of effort that has to go into publishing a book, and it's time that could be spend spending his writing. You know, absolutely. And so your journey uh, to getting your first series acknowledged. Do you have any tips on how to do that? Ah, uh, keep writing. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's always the best tip. Yeah, um, I tend to think all writing advice boils down to don't give up, uh, read a lot and write a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, people have written whole volumes on those themes, but at the basics, that's what it is. Uh, you have to read because you need input before you can have output. 
Uh, you have to write, otherwise you don't have anything to publish, and you have to not give up. Every every write you've ever heard of, I can guarantee you there was one point where they felt like giving up, uh, and they didn't. Uh, you know, that that's made things persistence, I think. Well, speaking of input, I understand in your background that you have a history degree. I do, yes. And I was struck by how well the disparate elements in the Draconis Memoria series work together to create believable context. I'm interested in history myself, although I actually have a degree in a very different subject. But thinking about your books, your latest series, it seemed like we had a little bit of the French monarchy and a subsequent revolution with a Corventine empire which falls with Liz's escape from a notorious prison. And then I see a bit of Victorian Great Britain and the presence of the Iron Ship Syndicate, which are profiting from the control and distribution of a substance that they extract from another continent. And with Clay Torcreek's people, the Long Rifles, who seem to be a group of honorable mercenaries, but they remind me of the Wild West and their aptitude with guns and dialects. And other groups like the Islanders brought to mind the New Zealand Maoris. Those are just my impressions, though. Can you tell us a bit about the process of creating those various cultures and how your studies inspired them? Um, well, the, all the you know background, the other the inspirations you mentioned, are definitely all played a part in creating them. Uh, this, this series is a bit of a mashup, but it's. Uh, it's a world at the level, a 19th century level of technology. It's, you know, uh, the mid-Victorian level in, a, in our world, but it's, it's a different world. Um, and a lot of it, the bulk of it came out of my reading of that, that era of history from, from uh, you know, the Napoleonic Wars through Franco-Prussian War, the American Civil War, and so on. Um, the Corbin teams are kind of... They could be any any sort of imperial, ancient imperial decadent power that is somehow still clinging on after centuries of declining uh, royal authority. And uh, what's presented in the book is kind of their last throw of the dice, if you like. Um, with the Iron Ship uh, Protectorate, it was more... Uh, the Protectorate is their army, and the Iron Ship, uh, the whole corporate world uh, that I created, it was really, uh, it came out of my reading of British imperial history and European imperial history in general, where they created these huge trading corporations, these trading companies. Uh, the British East India Company was, was the biggest, uh, and for a time, it was the largest, rich, the, the most rich entity on the, on the world, in the world. Uh, it had more money than most governments. Uh, it also had its own army and its own navy. Uh, and it, all, it all came to an end during uh, the Indian Mutiny uh, in the 1840s, mm-hmm. which really should be called the first Indian Revolution, but the British chose to call it a mutiny. Yes. Uh, uh, which, you know, is a bit of a misnomer in history. But anyway, uh, but it struck me that if that hadn't happened, and if the, these corporations... The, the British East India Company was just one of them. There was a French East India Company as well and various others. Uh, if they'd just been allowed to keep accruing wealth and keep building up their own resources and their own armies, it might have got to a point where maybe they just took over. Uh, what do you need governments for if corporations are running everything? Uh, 
which you could say is a question we we could ask ourselves now. We could. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that was that was really the main point of inspiration there. Um, and with the the clay, you know, and everyone in Eradzia, uh they are like the American frontier. It's kind of a cross between Australia and the American West, to be honest. Um, it's a wild, unsettled land, but uh, with, uh, as you say, a natural resource that's uh, quickly running out. Uh, and it's really uh, kind of a homage to my love of westerns and nothing. sort of the westerns of John Ford and so on, uh, which I've always enjoyed. So, yes, you've read broadly and then synthesized all those things into new books. There yeah, are- definitely. There are also the humans that are enslaved uh, by the white, which is the drake that leads to rebellion against mankind. One of those is Cirrus, and he's under the white's domination as well. He reflects on the drake's motivation for enslaving and killing humans. He says, because they hate us and they want everything. Well, the white drake is the antagonist in this series. However, to be fair to the white, humans have been capturing and raising drakes in pens, draining them of their valuable blood, and hunting them in the wild. How do you see the conflict? Are, are there any historical comparisons there? Um, well, the most obvious one is uh, whaling, you know, the, the huge whaling industry that persisted for about a century and a half, right into the, uh, in the middle of the uh, 20th century. And it didn't end because of environmental concerns. It didn't end because people thought we're being really mean to all these these whales because they're, they're really intelligent and possibly sentient. We should stop killing them. Uh, it ended because we were running out of whales. Uh, we'd killed them all. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're lucky there's any left, to be honest. There, there's some statistic about, you know, at one point in Europe, every lamp that was burning oil was burning whale oil or something like that. Uh, we'd hunted them to such an extent that they were just running out. Um, and, you know, was, you could apply that to, you know, how I presented the drakes. They, you know, their blood is valuable for various reasons. Uh, and they're, uh, the point is sort of starts, they're on the cusp of about, of about to be hunted to ex- extinction. The bloodlines are starting to thin. Uh, they've captured some so they can breed them in captivity, but the, the blood of captive drakes is not as potent as the wild drakes, and they're in the process of wiping them out. And it's a question of what happens when when it runs out. This is a world where their entire economy is based on this substance of mm-hmm. drake blood. When it's gone, what happens next? Uh, and the series is kind of a, an attempt to answer that question. I mean, it's speaking in a more sort of modern-day allegorical uh you know, Bane, you could say the, the drakes and the white drake uh, represent climate change. Uh, mm-hmm. We've inflicted a serious wound on our own planet to the extent that maybe in 100 years we won't be able to live here anymore. Uh, and I wish that was an exaggeration, but as, as increasing evidence points to the fact that it's not. Um, so, you know, in a broader, tense, broader context, you could say the drakes are climate change. I can say that, actually. Yeah, I was up in a mountainous region recently, and I was able to climb to the top because the glacier is gone. So I totally agree with that. Well, speaking of the drakes and their valuable product, 
I should enlarge on that here by saying there are certain humans who can ingest the drake's blood and get special powers. They're called blood blessed. And they usually shun the affections of others because they're often called to serve in difficult positions which require spycraft or assassination skills. In the beginning of the series, Liz Lethridge, who is one of the blood blessed, she seems practical and goal-oriented to the point of being callous. How does she evolve over the course of the series? Um, Lizanne becomes, uh, I don't want to say more human, because uh, I don't think, I, was, I never wanted her to be presented as some kind of sociopathic monster or anything, but she is very goal-orientated and does have a capacity for violence and killing people where it doesn't really bother her conscience, provided that she does it within certain set of rules. Um, what happens is that as the world starts to fall apart around her, she's forced to undertake more responsibility. Uh, and she's forced to be around people uh, in a way that she hasn't been before. She's, you know, <laughs> she ends up with a kind of quasi-family uh, of friends and, you know, people she's taken under her wing. And it's her increasing desire to protect them uh, that sort of drives a kind of gradual personality change. Uh, but she never really stops being ruthless and she, uh, at her core, she is what she is, you know. Uh, but by the, I think by the end of the third book, she's, I think, reached a stage where she's maybe ready for a career change. <laughs> she has been pre, uh, compared to James Bond by one of your readers, just to let you know. Yeah, <laughs> I've heard that before. Well, one pleasing aspect to many of your readers is your love for the naval and the many sea battles you recount. How did you become so interested in the Navy and ship battles? Um, well, I've always had an interest in military history in general, and history in general, but um, uh, just, it sort of the, the naval aspect of this came out of the fact that the, the whole geography of the world, to navigate this world, people needed ships. Um, so it came up with the idea that the ships, uh, some of them at least, are powered as well by direct blood, which makes them go a lot faster. Um, and the, you know, the natural uh, consequence of that is that if you wanted to exercise power in this world, you would need to have a navy. And if you're going to go to war with another power in this world, you're going to be fighting sea battles on a large scale. So it was all sort of logical progression from creating the world. Uh, I mean, research-wise, um, I read up a lot on the naval aspects of the American Civil War because that was the only war where uh, paddle steamers were used uh, on a large scale in combat. Uh, so I do owe quite a big debt to, to real-world history for naval battles in the end books. Did I read somewhere that your grandfather or great-grandfather was a naval officer as well? Uh, no, my dad was a chief petty officer in the Navy. That's oh. like being a sergeant major. Okay. Yeah, and he, uh, he left in his mid-30s, but yeah, he was in the Navy from the age of 16. Uh, but during the Cold War, he's got a lot of stories to tell about being on submarines during the Cold War and mm. various other things. Uh, but yeah, I mean, his experience was not... I don't think it was crucial to writing the book, but I was always avid, avidly listening to his stories. Yeah. 
So your Draconis Memoria series takes place in an age of innovation. It also lends that a steampunk element. The workings of ship engines and propellers, guns, cannons, they're all explained in detail. Did you ever considering studying engineering? Uh, only in the abstract. Uh, <laughs> okay. One of those people, I can, I can tell you how an internal combustion engine works, but don't ask me to fix it or build one. Uh, it just fall apart and it wouldn't work because uh, it's just not that practical. You know, uh, I can understand the theory. I've always been able to get my head around basics, the basics of science and the basics of engineering. Uh, and in the book, I was well, I did try not to go into too much detail because it can get a bit boring for the reader. So I was sketching it in in some ways that made it seem perhaps a lot more. Uh, well thought out than perhaps it was. <laughs> so there's enough detail there to sell the idea that you know, this is this thing called a thermoplasmic engine and it runs on uh, Drake blood. Uh, this is how it works. Uh, there's just enough there to convey the idea that it's a real thing. You know? Well, I was convinced. And it does seem that you might have somewhat a left-brained orientation. How do you think that's helped your work as a writer? Um, I think all writers, to a certain extent, have to be detail orientated. Uh, you have to do some kind of research. You know, writing a fantasy novel, even if I wasn't writing a fantasy novel that relied a lot on technology, I'd still be doing research. You know, for my other work, I do a lot of research too, um, which that, that definitely helps. And you do have to keep, even though I write notes, I do I write outlines and so on. Uh, you do have to keep a lot of things in your head and be able to you know, call upon them, call upon those details when you need them. So I guess it, it helps in that respect. Well, in contrast to Blood Song, your first published book, your characters are no longer so noble and idealized. And you've also developed the knack of ending each chapter with a cliffhanger. <laughs> Were those conscious decisions on your part? Um, I did want this to be much more of a grey area, morally speaking. Um, uh, the Raven Shadow books are heroic fantasy, so at their heart they're about heroes. Even though they, you know, they have their moments of darkness and, mm -hmm. and so forth, but they are a fundamentally heroic fantasy. Uh, the Dracronian books are, do exist in a more sort of grey area when it comes to the characters are not all good they've done bad things all of them have done bad things um, but I do think that each of the, you know, the four principal characters as the books, as the books develop uh, do have some kind of moral compass do have some kind of moral centre uh, and part of their stories is, is about finding it you know, maintaining it in a, in a world that's rapidly falling to pieces well, other than ending the chapters with cliffhangers, uh, how else do you think your writing has evolved? Um, I'd like to think I've got better at plotting. Uh, you know, I do outline and so forth, uh, which I think helps with plotting. I'd like to think I've got better at, at character too, having a more complex character. And world building, you know, the, this isn't a medieval world and it's, uh, you know, I tried to create as much of it in advance before I started. Um, I wrote an entire chronology of the world before before the start of, 
first book. Uh, so I think I've got better in that respect. Yeah, I hear you saying you did a lot of preparation and thinking out things before you actually sat down and started writing. Yeah. Well, what are you working on these days, Anthony? Uh, at the moment, uh, just I'm actually in between projects. Uh, I just finished a new novella for Subterranean Press, which hopefully will be out next uh, March or April, I think. Um, before that, I just finished the first of a new Raven Shadow. Well, it's, it's a return to the world of the Raven Shadow mm-hmm. universe, um, which uh, is a two-part series uh, called The Raven's Blade. And I, I finished the first book in that uh, two months ago. I'll be starting the second one hopefully soon. Okay, well, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for asking me. Thanks for listening to us today on New Books Fantasy and Adventure Channel. I've been talking to Anthony Ryan about his Draconis Memoria series. You can visit Anthony's website at anthonyryan.net or you can follow him on Twitter. That's writer underscore Anthony. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the Historical Fantasy Falcon series and the upcoming epic fantasy series. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more at Gabrielle Author G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E Thanks. Until next time.